another episode of Cinema Wheeler Tea. It's Sean, Tony, and Scott once again. Hello. And we always say we have a very special guest, but this goes even further today. It's, a, it's, a, it's someone we've been an, an enormous fan of for many years. Uh, he is the, uh, um, what I consider the heart and soul of the Kappa Summer Movie Series here in Columbus, which is a very popular event. It's... Uh, the organist, Mr. Clark Wilson. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Clark. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we uh, are huge fans of the Kappa Summer Movie Series. Like, it's an event that takes place every summer in Columbus. It usually runs from June to August. Right. During, and they play a lot of classic films. Uh, but it, that only ex- ex- explains half the experience. The bigger experience is the fact that it's accompanied at the beginning and towards the end with organ music, which Clark usually provides, and it's in the Ohio Theater, which is a great, you know, vintage movie, yes. you know, theater that's been, I think, how long has it been operational since, like, the 1900s, I believe? Right? Well, 1928. 1928, okay. was built, the Lowe's, the Lowe's Corporation, and they were here until 69 when Kappa was formed and took it over, and they've been running it since. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's such a pristine building, and I think it, like... Seeing a movie live is one thing, but to see it in this particular theater is always a unique experience, I think. It is. And, you know, what we try to do here, of course, is recreate what all the big movie palaces did back in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, where there was music, there was endless spectacle. It all started as soon as you you came in under the marquee and you were knocked out by the decor of the place and the lighting and the stained glass and the arches and the curtains and the lights and the organ music. And the organ, of course, led right into the movie and then picked up the movie at intermission and played right into the second half and then picked it up at the end. Oh, they all used to do that, and uh, we're one of the few that still do. And I think it only cost like a dime back then too, which would be hard for press for people to to view that because of you know the expenses of multiplexes these days, where it's fifteen dollars. Back then, you got all that entertainment for like a nickel yeah, or a dime. Yeah, yeah, ten cents, a quarter, whatever. And you know, thinking that that uh, was during the time of the depression and so on, particularly through the thirties. Oh, and people made, I don't know what it was, a dollar a day, a dollar a week, yeah. something yeah. like that. About a dollar a day, I think it was. Uh, there wasn't much money around. No, no so, there wasn't. Yeah. It was just such a grandiose experience. You know, um, movies themselves, more so I think back then than probably perhaps today, but they really were an escape. Were. You, you were you know, getting caught up in the world of the characters that you were seeing, and you had your favorite actor or actress, and you were excited to see them in a new film. And there was just this beautiful, grandiose experience about it that I love coming to Kappa because I still I feel like I'm getting that. You know, as Clark was just saying, you go to you know, some other theaters here in town, and you, you're lucky if you don't have to walk through piles of trash just to get <laughs> your seat. Yeah. You know, not to down-talk them or anything like that, no, but, no, but no, I, no. I just absolutely love coming here because, you know, it's no secret I'm an old soul, and um, I just feel, in a way, at home when I come to the Kappa movie series. And getting to see some of my favorite movies on the big screen for the first time is really special. You know, it's a really magical thing. Well, it's a total experience, I guess, when you, you come here, yeah. like I say, that starts on the sidewalk. And, you know, that's what these places were all about. Marcus Lowe, who was the head of the Lowe's Corporation, that, of course, uh, they, they owned MGM, aside from everything else in the picture business. And he was famously quoted once as saying uh, about the fancy theaters that they built, we don't sell tickets to movies, we sell tickets to theaters. Mm-hmm. So people can come and see these yeah. incredible palaces, things like they'd never seen before and certainly never been allowed into. Sure. So. It really makes you feel important, you know? You walk in and, and you feel like you're a movie star too, yeah. which is something I particularly like. It makes you feel glamorous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's so fabulous. You know? <laughs> Not all the guests follow your pathway on that, <laughs> but it's still, it's still a great experience nonetheless. <laughs> I was wondering with you, like, uh, most people go into this line of work. I mean, there's obviously a passion for film to begin with. Like, what do you, what were your first memories with movies? Like, what, what were your first loves of films? Where did that originate from for you? I can remember my grandmother taking me to a couple of small-town theaters that were 1920s theaters. They weren't like the Ohio, but they still were movie palaces on a small scale. And one of my earliest memories is seeing a classic old film with uh, Burt Lancaster in it called The Train. 
okay. It was a World War II picture that took uh, place in the French railways and so on. And, of course, as a kid, I liked trains. And <laughs> the, the thing is just full of all these steam engine shots and trains being bombed and so on. It was a great picture. That might be the, the earliest picture that I remember. I can remember very, very well Dr. Zhivago when it first came out and being dragged kicking and screaming by my mother to that and, uh, and also you know we got up a little bit further the way we were I remember when that came out you know, all those various things Butch Cassidy all those when they were brand new and so on and uh, 2001 Space Odyssey oh, as well yeah I was just blown away by the music and oh, that, okay. you know, and the deep bass and all of that, and all of that, you know, that beautiful imagery of the space station and everything just doing its thing to Strauss being played yeah, yeah. in the background. So it was always about, you know, music for me as well. That's great. And Kubrick in particular is always distinct with the way he uses music in films, like, uh, like whether it's The Shining or 2001, like with the classical music, because he normally doesn't hire like a film composer he usually takes snippets of different compositions and kind of puts them to film but it always fits perfectly there's an interesting story that I was told while I was working in Hollywood a few years ago uh, and playing for the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and the night before the show we went out with some high powered people to dinner and I was just like a sponge absorbing all that was being said and you know those folks are just like we are except they're all about movies Yes, it's constant movie talk at the table they got to talking about 2001 and the story behind the whole scoring where and they did hire a composer and somebody to score that picture and then they decided very close to the last minute to just dump the whole thing fire the fellow and put the Strauss to it. So they were talking about, of course, that had been all the rage around town at the time. This fellow had done all this work, done this whole score for the picture, and then just got booted off the picture, and they changed gears and put the Strauss to it. So just an interesting behind the scenes that almost nobody knows about. Yeah. Wow, that's like fascinating. like they did to Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's like, nope, next. Yeah, you know, she worked so hard to record those songs, and yeah. luckily now, you know, behind the scenes, special editions and stuff, we can see her. Mm-hmm. Um, and hear her, but yeah, it's so sad when that kind of thing happens. But at least yeah. it seemed like it worked out for the best in that case. I, of course, have my own opinions about. Yeah. She's the a voicing. devoted Audrey fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, all those things that go on in the movies behind the scenes, and you know, you hear about the people that were almost cast in Gone with the Wind, yeah. something like that. And then you try to imagine what would this picture have been like if those people had been in it, in yeah. this, this icon of the picture. So, yeah. It's always fun when you read those background stories, too, because it's like so-and-so was originally considered for the part. Like, I know Jack Nicholson was considered for Michael Corleone in The Godfather, but he turned it down because yeah. he didn't think he'd be the right fit. Yeah. You know, but you're also like, I can't imagine anybody but Al Pacino in that role. But, yeah, there are people right. they went through. Yeah. 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 So I was wondering, uh, who are your favorite film composers, the people that, like, that you admire the most or you keep going back to? <laughs> well, since we happen to be doing South Pacific this weekend, it would currently be Richard Rogers. Uh, <laughs> 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 but you know, certainly all of the big ones, I mean, just the, the people that you think of when you think of all of the, the most famous pictures from Gone with the Wind, you know, right on through all those famous composer names, and there were what six, eight, or ten of them, yeah. something like that, that did picture after picture after picture after picture. You see their names all the time. It's hard to pick a favorite. Yeah. Uh, although certainly, I, I'm a tremendous admirer of Max Steiner. You know, Gone with the Wind and everything else he did. Yeah, Who could fantastic. do a better job than that? <laughs> yeah. 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 Is there someone that's like? Maybe under the radar, a composer that did a lot of movies that people... He's not a big name, but he... David Raxson. Yeah. David Raxson. Um, the Bad and the Beautiful. Okay. And, um, oh, several other films. Just beautiful, beautiful music. Mm-hmm. Music that we all know, but you don't know his name. It's not yeah. as famous as Max Steiner, although he was an important Hollywood composer. Yeah. That's the first person that comes to mind of really high-quality music. Were they journeyman composers back then? I mean, like, because pictures were just, like, produced, like, you know, like... Well, the studios hired, uh, you know, they hired their specialists mm-hmm. for everything. Yeah. And uh, the studios did have in-house composers, just like they had in-house stars yes. at the time. Uh, and they were expected to do just so much stuff, uh, and sometimes 
just about more than they were capable of. Steiner, for instance, was pushed very hard uh, by David O. Selznick to get this score done for Gone with the Wind in a very, very short time, something like six weeks or maybe it was less than that. And, of course, they kept adding to the picture and things were being changed around and so on. And, and he, uh, he complained bitterly that there just simply was not enough time for him to compose the kind of a quality score that he insisted had to go with this picture. So Selznick promptly said, well, that's okay. We'll just get somebody else. As a, that changed which gear yeah. the production was in of the music, and of course he produced what he produced. So, yeah. I was wondering, like uh, with silent movies, because I know that's something that uh, is definitely an area of expertise for you at this point. Uh, were there any silent films that grabbed you immediately? That that of the opera. Oh, that was really uh, aside from uh, some of the old Spanky and our gang comedies that I had seen. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> the first one really was Phantom of the Opera, and it just knocked me out. I mean, Cheney and his his makeup and how he looks as the Phantom, and then of course it was scored on the organ uh, in a theater actually over in Akron uh, that's still there. You know, the uh, the Lowe's Akron that's that's still there. The Civic, and. Uh, I just was absolutely blown away by this total experience of what went on with this perfect music uh, behind this. And then when they unmasked the Phantom and people shrieked and, and all that sort of thing went on, and, you know, hankies went flying and whatnot. I just thought, wow, I'd, I want to do this. Our personal experience with, with, with the summer movie series, like when I first moved to Columbus, it was about 2003, and I saw an advertisement in the uh, paper for rear window was playing and it was one of my favorite movies okay. mm -hmm. I said I'd love to see that on the big screen so I came down and I loved the whole experience and a few years later Scott I took Scott we're brothers and I took him yep. uh, to see it uh, for the first time and it was Metropolis and I don't think Scott knew much about it and then I think that was your showcase for that particular year okay, right that had a profound impact on, well, I loved it too, but Scott, I know that was an enormous uh, impact on you when you saw him, wasn't it? Yeah, I did. Well, I was amazed that you played for, what, two and a half hours? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that was an impressive feat. Um, but just, I mean, if I had just seen that movie on TCM or something, I don't think I probably would have just, not because it wasn't good, but you just don't get the full... Well, that's, volume of the movie, you know? that's the interesting thing about silent films, and, and it, it applies to a certain extent to all of the pictures. It's a different experience seeing it in a theater like the Ohio yeah. on a big screen with a big audience. You know, your reactions are different. Watching a Marx Brothers picture or something, you laugh way harder when you're in an audience yeah. of people that are yeah. just screaming and laughing. But it's even more important and more effective uh, with silent film. Because, of course, we're very, very lucky to be able to see all of these uh, silent pictures that have been salvaged and are restored and being shown on Turner mm -hmm. on TV. But, you know, you sit in your living room and you, you watch that relatively small screen and you hear a canned score. Mm -hmm. and then you go off to a theater like The Ohio and you hear the scope of the music with a, with a pipe organ that literally moves the building when it plays... Mm -hmm. And you've got that full reaction of being in that huge room with a big audience watching this picture and getting into it. Yeah. It's like when I played uh, uh, Wings at the Academy. Uh, there's there's 1,100 people in the house, Hollywood types, and they are ready. They want to see this <laughs> yes. picture. There's an electricity that doesn't happen in your living room. Well, That's... there's an emotion to it, I think. Uh, the first silent film I had ever seen here at Kappa was uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. It was a few years ago, and you played for that, and it brought me to tears. It was so moving, and I had never seen a Charlie Chaplin movie. That was the first time I'd ever seen it, and I think just having that experience gave me a really strong respect. I mean, I always had one for him. I think mm -hmm. anyone would, given his um, career and all the things you hear about, the impact that he had on movies, but that was just like this totally different experience. I mean, it was like you just... You fall in love with the story, you fall in love with the characters, you fall in love with the tramp, and yeah. and with Charlie Chaplin himself, you know. Um, it was really a beautiful, beautiful night. And I think if I had seen that, you know, on a computer or at home, it would have just been like, oh, that was a sweet story. Mm -hmm. You know, it wouldn't have been as um, moving and as touching, I think, not having been in this dark, beautiful, ornate, dark theater, just... 
And that's Soaking the whole it in. thing when I keep going back to saying, you know, total experience, that it, uh, it literally, the music and the combination of all that going on live yeah. with that picture uh, really makes the picture kind of jump off the screen, mm -hmm. wrap its arms around you, you become part of the experience. Yeah. It's a different experience than viewing a picture with sound. It really is. Yeah. It engages a different part of your brain, and, and you're brought into it in a different way. Yeah. I think there's a unique artistry to silent films, especially in our day and age, when you see it on a big screen. Because it's hard, like you guys were saying, to have an entry level on television or watching it, because it's a completely different acting style. It's a completely different approach mm -hmm. to filmmaking mm -hmm. and even storytelling. And so some people, it's... They might find it antiquated and they move away, but when you see it in a theater, it's like, there's like a dreamlike experience, which I think is what cinema is supposed to do anyways, mm -hmm. kind of transport you to a yeah. different time and place. And the power of the organ playing alongside the side, it's like you're transported back in time and it hits you in a way that it doesn't hit you in any other medium. I think this is where you really need to see silent films. Yeah. Yeah, and I would absolutely agree, uh, again, for all the reasons that I say, but, uh, mm -hmm. but something happens yeah. Yeah. when it's that live experience, and that's really the only way that you can experience the silent film art, is that way. So what's, what's your background musically, like, um, like your training? Because um, the organ here is completely original, unique instrument. It's, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't imagine that... You can just pick that up and you know take it into your house <laughs> and start <laughs> practicing on it. How do you get access to something like that to practice? And well, I went down the uh, the typically formal route of yeah. studying piano first, and then mm -hmm. I played in church. Mm -hmm. But then I discovered this thing called the theater organ, the sound of it. That, yeah. that, you know, if you'll. If you will, it sounds like a, a whole orchestra yeah. at work. It's a different kind of sound. I couldn't understand why our church organ didn't sound that way. And there was no way to get it to sound that yeah. way. And, um, and then there were friends that brought me here yeah. to the farewell concert in 1969 and I was just a little kid mm -hmm. and I was just blown away uh, as we sat up in the center of the balcony and of course the building shook and you know this whole thing went on and I, just, I was never the same uh, after yeah. that I, I wanted something to do with the theater organ well when I was growing up uh, that was not the time to go <laughs> off to conservatory or organ schools and learn anything about this kind of organ. Yeah. If I had done that, they would have done everything they could to have beat sense into my head and knock this out yeah. of me. Yeah. So I didn't do that. Everything I did was private then, private yeah. study. And uh, really, at that time, picking up the theater organ was very, very much on your own mm -hmm. uh, with maybe some, some coaching from, from some of the good, good organists yeah. and mm -hmm. artists that were willing to share with you. And I was fortunate. I had uh, a couple of them that, that were very extensive in what they were willing to give me, one of them being an original silent film organist from the 20s. Wow. And that's where I picked up the rudiments of, of doing all of that extremely lucky. I'm one of only three or four of us that do this that had that opportunity to really know people who had scored silent pictures for a living in the 1920s. So it gave us an insight into something that most people don't have. And I, I absolutely include Hollywood composers and the people that are out on the circuit playing for silent films today that never knew anybody that did it. You know, they don't have the inner clues. Yeah. You know, there's the things you need to be told about that sort of thing. Anyway, that was that was the basis mm -hmm. of uh, of what I did in learning. Did you have access to an organ nearby that you could go to and practice on, or not a theater yeah. organ? I could always go to the church and and mm -hmm. practice on that, yeah. and I uh, I bedeviled my parents nonstop for <laughs> couldn't we get a pipe organ for the house, which we eventually did. Oh, we eventually did. Eventually did get a a little Kimball theater pipe organ, and had it for many years that uh, that I could I could practice on and so on. Yeah. But uh, I'm a, on the road these days about 80% of the time playing these organs all over the United States constantly. And uh, so I don't really need one of them yeah. to work everything up on. <laughs> Although being around here for you know, between two and three months in the summertime and having yeah. access to this organ 24-7 doesn't hurt anything. Yeah. <laughs> is, so is this the best organ that you play or is there other I would rate this one as one of the top three theater organs in the United States without question in the world yeah. probably yeah. yeah and it's yeah that's, that's pretty well preserved yeah it's well preserved and 
yeah. taken care of. And yeah, it's a very dynamic instrument, kept in really, really good condition. And uh, it's one of those rare instruments. There, there's just nothing that you can't play on it. It wow. will do anything that you want. It's big enough. It's powerful enough. It has the scope to do anything that you can ask of it. And you get that sense here during the uh, movie series, like because I know that you put kind of a compilation together for each film. Like you match it with a specific theme. Like if there, if let's say hypothetically you're playing Jaws here. You're going to take a lot of... Yeah, we have, actually, literally. You would take a bunch of John Williams compositions at the beginning and kind of weave them in. And I kind of like that as a film fan. I kind of like that. It's like, oh, that's from that. And I see why he's doing that in this particular film. Uh, Do you usually think a lot of that stuff through well before... uh, I watch every film in the spring and uh, come up with the musical ideas of what to do with it. Uh, Every piece that I play has some significance to the film. You know, my first choice is any music that's in the film. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, like you say, you, there might be a composer. You know, if it's a John Williams score, you can dig into a lot of John yeah. Williams. Then I'll go what music might be associated with the star of the picture. Mm-hmm. If uh, you know, if Julie Andrews is starring in something, then there's a wealth of music, yeah, yeah, Julie yeah, Andrews music that I can pick. And lastly, uh, well, sometimes it's based on the time period that the picture is in. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's uh, or, or if it's a uh, like uh, you know, something like Seven Brides or Seven Brothers, I'll pick Americana music. You know, sort of country type music that might yeah. fit with that whole thing. And lastly, if I I fail at everything else, it's playing music that was on the top forty in the year the film was made. Oh, great! So, so that's a good. Uh... So am I getting ahead of myself to think that? On the night you do charade, we might hear some Henry Mancini. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes, you certainly will. You certainly will. Do you have any questions? Not a bad choice. Either, you know. A lot of good stuff. There yes. And Henry Mancini composed a lot more music aside from just, you know, Pink Panther and Moon yes. River. Mm-hmm. So there's much to choose from. Yeah. Yeah, he did a, a lot of television theme songs, too, like yeah. Peter Gunn's yeah. theme, I think was he a did. famous mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you part of the uh, selection committee for the films? Like, do you usually help to choose the films they're going to play that summer? Or Unofficially, uh, I am, and I always, uh, almost always send in titles. I ask various people, or if people come to the console and say, gee, would they ever consider showing? I always make a note of that. Mm-hmm. So anybody who, uh, who wants to mention anything, I make up a list as the summer goes along, and then we pass that along and, and uh, we see what we can do. Yeah. Sometimes we can get films, sometimes they can't get, you know, it's interesting in the, in the film release business because theaters like this that show older movies are not plentiful today. And so it can be extremely difficult to get a print of something. You know, in the last, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And you know, in the last few years we've begun uh, doing DVD projection, um, which a lot of people are sorry that the carbon arc projection is gone to a certain extent, as are we, but the films are getting harder and harder and harder to get. And the last couple of years that we were 100% film, some would come in each year that were faded out to red, or a musical might come in that was so spliced up that you you couldn't use it. The songs were all broken up and chopped to pieces and so on, so we had no choice. We had to go with that. But uh, So so, uh, that opens it up to a lot more things that we can get now that we couldn't get before. So I think think our possibilities are expanding. Well, if it's any consolation, you certainly can't tell that it is a DVD. I could never tell. Yeah. The quality-wise, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. The big trend now is 4K restoration, I've noticed, which is like the most pristine-looking version of a film you can see. Mm-hmm. Um, I know at the Gateway Film Center, they're getting a lot of classic films, like the Bond films, are, they're doing an entire series of Bonds, mm-hmm. and they always mm-hmm. say 4K restoration. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be the new trend now with, with yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, vintage films. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's interesting, you know, in this digital uh, projection and so yeah. on, that they've sort of reached... Maybe what they were trying to reach back in the fifties with Todd A.O. and Cinemascope, you know, when when they were struggling trying to bring people into theaters because television was doing the best it could to shut theaters down at that point, and they were struggling with with picture quality, you know, picture quality, and suddenly we have these restorations, and it's just like we've got 
for South Pacific. It's a DVD. It's a Blu-ray that we're showing, mm -hmm. and the picture is just absolutely drop dead beautiful. Mm -hmm. So it's so crystal clear. It's just it's fabulous. Yeah, I know. It's hard to resist that kind of clear cut yeah. image. Yeah. Are you surprised? Like this is something that I'm always pleasantly surprised as a film buff is when I come to the summer movie series especially with films such as the Hitchcock films or like a Hepburn Tracy classic the turnout here is amazing you're getting a large diverse group of people from various ages coming here to see these films I mean it's only four dollars or something but I'm just just pleasantly surprised at how many people it draws does that ever amaze you as well when you look out at the crowd like wow I can't believe this many people what are does amaze me every now and then is when we'll schedule a picture and I remember some years back when we uh, the first time we scheduled um, an Indiana Jones mm -hmm. picture and we had 2300 people show up wow. that night and nobody was prepared for that it was just like bedlam in the place it was so <laughs> many people I think we were there ourselves that night. yeah yeah and, and, and you know even, even though I don't face the audience when I'm playing until it's time to, to speak to them, there's a sound that the room gets when it gets that full. Mm -hmm. The acoustics change. There's, a, there's something that goes on in that room, and I knew we had a huge crowd, and it's thrilling. Yeah. It's really thrilling. And, again, that generates an electricity that you don't have when there are 250 people yeah. present. You know, when there are 2,000, that's different. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely a different yeah. energy. Yeah. And you can even feel it in the audience when there's that oh, many people yeah. there. Remember yeah. when we saw Princess Bride? Yeah. I think that it was, was last summer, movie. it was a crowded yeah. house, and everybody was getting really into it, you yeah. know, and kind of commenting as the film went on. It had a very um, fun, cult-like experience, you know, as an audience mm -hmm. member. Yeah, I think fun. Singing in the Rain had that same experience last year, too, because I remember there was a lot of people for Singing in the Rain, and again, it was the same energy that you wouldn't yeah. get anywhere else because of the size of the theater, that many people coming in. And The Wizard of Oz, too. I remember when we came in South Yeah, and, and, and they do get into it, and it's fun, uh, you know, when I'm backstage and you hear the entire audience applauding after every song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just like it was a live production. It's like, well, oh, these, these folks are really into this. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing I also appreciate is that, well, you guys definitely highlight, like, what you call a greatest tips package, you know, with mm -hmm. the bigger films that most people are widely familiar with. You don't shy away from lesser-known films or more obscure films. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you'll play something like a B-movie like Cobra Woman, <laughs> you know, into the schedule. Or The Silence. You're not going to pick the obvious silence like uh, The Freshman this year you guys are doing, which is not maybe the first Harold Lloyd film most people would think of. But I still think it's great that you're saying there's more to this, the body of work for these people than yeah. just the titles you're familiar with. And as you well know, there are a lot of films that are really, really fine work that are not that well known. Right. Like Auntie Maine is yeah. one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. You need the DVD to borrow it. You know, <laughs> show it next summer. We <laughs> could do that. that I'll put it's that on so the list great. because I'm not sure we've ever shown that. I'm not sure Russell. we've done that one with Russell. Yeah. Russell. Yeah. She doesn't have to hand it to you next to the organ. She'll do it right now. <laughs> and she's serious, too. She yeah. will be there. Oh, I just love it. Yeah. That's a good film. It's a great it film. Yeah. It's so ahead of its time. A great film. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that must be like in a, a great position to be in where you can actually say, most people may not be familiar with The Freshman, let's put that out there so people will get exposed to it a bit more, you know, and kind of build up a fan base for it. Yeah. Well, it's fun um, you know, playing these different films all over the country for different groups or film festivals or whatever. I get introduced to a lot of films that maybe I wouldn't bump into otherwise, silent mm -hmm. films, I mean, things that I, I am requested to put a score to and, and to play. And, uh, of course, the vast majority of them are just tremendous films. Some of them are that uh, I can think that I've played that I'd never heard of before or since, and they're wonderful films, wonderful films. And so eventually I'll bring them up on the list of things here and say, let's do this. Like, like last summer, uh, you know, we did Sunrise, a beautiful film that probably the general public would have no idea mm -hmm. what that film had never heard of it, never heard of it. But anybody who saw it, we had a tremendous reaction to it beautiful film what a wonderful just gorgeous picture and so it's fun to, to bring that sort of thing and again like you say the freshman this year it's uh maybe not generally the best known of the Harold Lloyd pictures that would probably fall to being safety last I suppose where he climbs up the side of the building right, yeah, right. hangs oh, on yeah. the clock and everything uh -huh. but uh for my nickel I think this is funnier 
I think this is a better picture, and uh, I think people will get a real kick out of it. But I don't believe it's been shown in town, at least not that I know of, and we've never shown it before. So, How would you gauge the country in general, especially with like younger people, like let's say Gen X, millennials, when it comes to classic films you play? Do you, do you sense that these films are going to have a legacy beyond this generation, or do you see it maybe the interest might be waning a bit? Like, What's your take on that? Well, for sound films, uh, tastes change, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, in the back end, the oldest of the films, you know, those dates are, are moving forward through time. Mm-hmm. You find more people requesting films from the 50s and 60s. Maybe American Graffiti is an old film. Yeah. Uh, something <laughs> like that. Uh, you might not uh, have as many requests or as many people that really want to see 1930s musicals, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, we still try to show some of those every now and then because I think it's an important part of just our film history, mm-hmm. period, yeah, that is. we keep those alive. We can't just drop those and uh, yeah. just never use them again just because they're not uh, bringing in maybe the biggest audience of the season. Um, I think as a, as a moviegoer, it's really fun to come here and not really know what you're getting into. You've maybe heard of a movie or you know a star that's in the movie, but you haven't actually seen it yourself. And so you're just excited to, to sit down and have this fun experience. And part of the fun of that is coming here. So even if it's maybe a film that you may not care to watch again, mm-hmm. I think there's an excitement, for me anyway, just to come here and say, hey, you know what? I'd, I've never seen this film, but it's just Cox, so I trust it'll be good. Yeah, you know, yeah, I don't really yeah. know anyone in it. It's yeah. a little bit older, but let's just sit here, have a good time, and you know, enjoy the show. And and I think, I hope anyway, that a lot of people share that mindset because it gets you can introduce yourself to new things that Absolutely. you know you wouldn't it normally. Your mind. Yeah, yeah, it just expands your mind. Maybe something that you wouldn't look down a list in the paper and say, "Oh, I think I'm going to go to this film." Yeah, but you know, that's the only thing that's playing at the Ohio on Friday, so you go to it mm-hmm. and you come out saying, "You know, that was a pretty good picture. I didn't know about that." Mm-hmm. That's yeah. happened to me a thousand times. You know, when I came here 26 years ago and started this, I was not a classic film aficionado. <laughs> uh, you know, those first few years were a tremendous learning curve of seeing films that I had not seen before, which I am embarrassed to say I hadn't seen at this point in time, <laughs> and because they're classics. But, uh, you know, I consider all of those over the years of just, just being, again, mind-expanding things, and you can talk intelligently about those with a lot more people than I ever could have back then. <laughs> and it's, it's been great. I've been introduced to so many fine films that I didn't even know existed. Sure. So. I, and I also think it's great for younger generations, too, uh, to come here with their parents or their grandparents and to see some of these older films that they're probably not seeing on TV, especially if you don't have cable, you don't have access to Turner or anything like that. You're, you're probably not as inclined to ever see anything. So the cap in its own right, I think for that gift, is so fantastic. Um, you know, the first movie this year was All About Eve, which mm-hmm. I'd never seen before, and I absolutely loved it. It sparked this huge love for Betty Davis that I think mm-hmm. everybody has that watches Betty Davis. Um, but, you know, I think it's great to keep those movies alive, and hopefully it brings in younger people. Well, and we hope. see a lot of people, I've noticed this season with several of the films, and, and today, with mm-hmm. South Pacific yeah. itself, a number of, of older folks bringing their grandchildren, mm-hmm. just young kids, young mm-hmm. kids to see this, and they've had a good time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's introducing these films to a, yet another generation. It's almost context is important to introducing these things, too. Like, like you said, you, you can't watch a silent film just on television. To see it here is where that, yeah. that seed is planted yeah. for them to keep pursuing it. Yeah. I know for me, I wasn't a big musical fan, or I would never imagine I'd be going to see Astaire Rogers pictures. But last year, you know, like gradually, I've noticed I love that more and more. Like I saw Top Hat mm-hmm. last year, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. And there's a couple of things. Number one, I like vehicles. They had stars back then, and they designed movies oh, yeah. for stars. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. And so I like seeing a vehicle like that that was specifically designed for them. But also, the banter is a lot more sophisticated. Like, for as much as we, some people stub their nose at older pictures, there's a level of sophistication sometimes those pictures that we don't have anymore. Absolutely. You know, and, Absolutely. and that's an example. Top Hat, the, 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 the dancing and the banter between Astaire and Rogers and how sharp that is. Yeah. It's like actors can learn a lot from that's watching like those two work. Eve. 
Yeah. I mean the the dialogue and and yeah. every I mean you're just oh, fascinated. Oh, it's just it's just it's it's you know just cutting edge yeah. dialogue. It's razor sharp dialogue yeah. and it's quickly delivered and decisively delivered. You know, like those famous people that can just cut you off at the knees yeah. in a split second. You don't know what ha- you don't know what happened. That's uh, but the other all those Astaire Rogers films and the Gene Kelly films and so you know oh, yeah. and it and it inspires you to go back and research a bit more about these people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you come to find out, like you say, that the pictures were designed for them. The music was written for them. Yeah. Like Garland, you know, the amount of music that was written specifically for her. The amount of music written for Astaire to dance to. And then how he drove himself, you know, to create those dances. And, you know, we all think, oh, well, you know, it's all just put together and so easy like anything. And he worked, and he worked, and he worked, and he worked, and slaved away on those things, Mm -hmm. and drove all of his associates, too. (laughs) I mean, Ginger Rogers was famously, uh, again, quoted uh, in some of those pictures as having her feet were bleeding Mm -hmm. after the rehearsals. They went through the dance numbers so many times because Fred Astaire insisted that they be absolutely perfect. That's why he was Fred Astaire. And I'd like to point out, as a woman, she did everything he did in high heels. Everything he yes. high heels. Yes. And that so, was the thing. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Ginger, we praise you. Yeah, <laughs> yep. incredible. Just incredible. Back then, too, movie stars, it, you weren't just an actor. They had to sing. They had to be funny. They triple had to threat. act. It's triple threat. They could dance. I mean, they were, like, multifaceted, where today it's either you're an actor, you're a singer. I mean, it's a completely different way of approaching it. Well, movie stars back then had brands. They had personas. You were an extension of the characters that you played on the screen, like Cary Grant. He has this persona that is Cary Grant. Kate Hepburn is the same way. Um, Jimmy Stewart, which, of course, makes me think of Philadelphia Story, which I love, talking about good banter. That's a great movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they all had their own personas that they, the characters mirrored qualities that each actor I think embodied in, in real life to a certain extent which is why directors um, producers would create these vehicles for them you know they'd say oh I want to make a picture for Cary Grant and it's going to be this kind of guy and you know he's going to be in these kinds of situations well and of course the stars at that time you know that was back when the studio system mm-hmm. was in force and the studios owned their stars mm-hmm. just like they owned racehorses they owned their star- they groomed their stars and they created their public uh, persona mm-hmm. and that was carefully crafted by the studio publicity system uh, and that's why many of the stars uh, were married when they were to who they were. It was uh, it wasn't of convenience. It was of convenience to the studio, because mm-hmm. the studio said you will do this because this needs to be part of your publicity of who you are. Uh, everything was glamorous, and so the, so the, those people were created, mm-hmm. and they. Uh, they were probably the greatest actors in the world because they acted their own part all of their lives. Just mm-hmm. like Cary Grant. I think he was famous who quoted one time saying, um, everybody wants to be Cary Grant and so do I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so something that It was an Archie Leach. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was uh-huh. a character that yeah. Archie Leach created yeah. mm-hmm. and that the studio bought and paid for and pushed bigger than life and so he was Cary Grant the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Lucille Lesseur. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes, for those who, who don't know, Joan Crawford, of course. Yeah. And, you know, none of those people was weren't, Which, they weren't their name. names. Oh, Lucille. I mean, today, of course, that would probably be a big thing on a marquee. Uh-huh. You know, you would never dream of changing Leonardo DiCaprio's name, <laughs> but they wouldn't have had it back in those days because it didn't roll off your tongue easily. Yeah. You know, yeah. he would have he would have been named something else. But you know, back to what you were saying that uh, that they all had to do everything. Most of those people, of course, that came up from the silent picture era that that began movie making and were the, the, the stars like uh, Fred Astaire, they were vaudevillians. Mm-hmm. They were live entertainment that traveled the vaudeville circuit at the theaters, like this one, mm-hmm. uh, all over the United States. Judy Garland. And they had to do everything. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Francis Gum. Yep. Francis yep. Gum. She had a sister act. Yeah. 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 Gum sisters. Gum sisters. Uh-huh. There's yep. almost like a fine line between a James Cagney and a Bing Crosby because they're both vaudevillians, both have that background, but mm-hmm. one just tended to go further into singing, one tended mm-hmm. to go further in acting, but they probably were like mm-hmm. the same 
they were yep. trained the same way, you know. Well, it was probably a mixture of what their strength was, and did they have a greater strength in this area? Let's lean towards that. And also the producers and the studio saying, yep. we want you to do this, and yep. we want him to do that. And well, I think typically, you know, think, think of Mickey Rooney. Mm-hmm. And he did everything. Mm-hmm. You know, you look look at the films that he was in. He does everything from play the drums to lead the band to act to sing to dance, and he does it all well. Yes. Uh, he was really, really something. I met him. I, I played the, I played for him when he was uh, he and Ann Miller were traveling the country <gasps> doing Sugar Babies. Did you meet Ann Miller he, too? Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I, I love did. Ann Yes. She was fabulous, a great dancer. Yeah, she was. She I mean, was no, fabulous. That, but. It was incredible. The two of them, of course, mm-hmm. were there's these titanic egos, mm-hmm. <laughs> bigger, well, bigger than well, life. You have here and here. Bigger than life, <laughs> yeah. both of them. And the screaming matches oh that went God. on backstage <laughs> during the rehearsals were just were uh, well, they would be legendary. It was incredible. But of course, the show was just perfect. Yeah. What they wow. did was just. Perfect. And you know, I want to talk, touch on that because um, one of my favorite modern day directors is David Lynch, and Ann Miller is in Mulholland Drive. And even though that movie was made in 2001, Ann Miller is still Ann Miller. Yep. She still upholds that image that she had, you know. Yep. I mean, she's got the makeup yep. and, the, you know, the glamorous. Yep. And I think that's a true testament to what we were just talking about. You know, she was probably so conditioned she was to being this way. Yes. By MGM. Yes. You know, the Ann, yeah. Ann Miller was created uh, by MGM mm-hmm. and the rest of her life. She was Ann Miller mm-hmm. in the public. Yeah. And it's also interesting when you talk about, like, the fighting backstage. Like, there's this pro switch with those people that... They are so like they're so ingrained with being a performer that mm-hmm. they know to just turn it off immediately as soon as they hit the stage and they give you exactly what you wanted them to deliver. You know, mm-hmm. usually mm-hmm. that's always fascinating to me too. That they could <laughs> they could go from the dressing room all the way to the stage and it's a completely radically different transformation. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were just they're amazing people, and and again, you know. So many people say, "Oh, hell yeah, they're not nice people." You know that. Well, no, maybe they weren't nice people, and you know, maybe Fred Astaire and all of them drove all of their cohorts just about crazy to get it perfect. But that's why they were who they were. Mm-hmm. It wasn't second best. There was never a mistake. There was yeah. never anything. And I remember seeing, and I think it was on Turner, where they were showing two different takes of one of Astaire's dances done completely at different times, not just one hour and then the next, but weeks apart. And they were exactly the same. Wow. Exactly the same through this whole three minutes of dancing. That's how tightly rehearsed he was. Well, that's like Gene Kelly and Singing yeah. in the Rain. Yeah. He was ill when he recorded yes, the, the, when the he famous recorded Singing the in the Rain, in the rain number. Rain. He, he had a high fever. And yeah. I mean, you, he did that, I think it was reported one take or two takes or something really yeah. abstract. And you just, yeah. you watch this and you just... That he's a pro. Yeah. He's a 100% pro. And you're just amazed. You think, oh, for sure he spent, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. so My, much time. Uh, uh, sorry, I have on that note is I saw a YouTube clip recently of Julie Andrews and Gene Kelly singing Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious together. And he was doing the Dick Van Dyke part. And he nailed it out of the park. It's like he did not miss a beat. I mean, taking nothing away from Dick Van Dyke, but it yeah. just shows you how good Gene Kelly is. Like, he just... Yeah had all those beats in place and knew how to sell it charismatically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah they say he was a perfectionist, too, very much. Like well, you know, it, it, and of course, all of those people had what they called star quality, mm-hmm. that indefinable thing. They had star quality when they were on the stage, and you can see that in some of the earliest uh, film of Gene Kelly when he was on Broadway. And he was not a, necessarily a big starring part mm-hmm. in the in the production, but as soon as he came on stage, you just glommed right over to him. And not just because we know Gene Kelly, but he stood out. Something about him stood out. He had star quality. That's, he, yeah. Well, his physique was so unlike anyone else at the time. He was relatively yeah. stocky, muscular. Yeah. Um, that, you know, compared to someone like Fred Astaire, completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, he had that knockout smile. You know, I, yeah. he just had that quality, yeah. I think, that was really unique. But you look, you know, you look uh, like at Singing in the Rain. You look mm-hmm. at all those musicals that Gene Kelly was in. Every big production number, when it ends, expect the smile. Oh, look yeah. how yeah. he freezes. <laughs> look how he freezes at the end with that smile. Uh-huh. I mean, it just, you know, that was rehearsed as... Tightly as any dance. Yeah. I, I bet. bet. I bet. Yep. Got to smile. Got to be me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Before uh, we uh, wrap up, I was going to wonder, like you mentioned, your your experiences working for Hollywood. Uh, mm-hmm. well, how, how has your experience been with that? Was it, Has it been as exciting as you would expect it to be? Or is there, um, let's say, like more of the uh, behind the scenes, the reality of it, does that get in the way? Or is it just as enjoyable as you'd expect? Well, for me, it was. I mean, I, I've never done anything in Hollywood that was... Uh, you know, like creating a full score for a brand new movie or anything like that. So, you know, I haven't done the day-to-day things on a set or something like that. But, but what I've done, the limited amount certainly, uh, and and uh, uh, working with those people, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a tremendous experience. And I mean, I was working the full time to not be totally starstruck myself. Just the fact that I, here I am in the Samuel Goldwyn Theater at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and you just want to faint is what you yeah. want to do. Just faint dead away because I can't believe I'm here. <laughs> uh, you know, And the people that come up after this silent film and, and wanted to chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people that we all know. I, I mean, Leonard Maltin, first person up the aisle to have yeah. a chat and so on. You know, oh, this sort of thing. Yeah. And it's just, you know, you're just... Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for you, that has to be so gratifying, you know? Well, and it, is. And it is. Really it is. It, it's just tremendous. It, it's tremendous. And it's neat because somebody who has devoted their entire life to playing the organ... Mm-hmm. Yes. And I find myself at the Academy. Uh, what, what could be grander for me? I mean, really, and that's not an egotistical statement. That's just, I can't believe I'm doing this type thing. Yeah. Yeah, of, of where it actually has taken me. We actually are going to be traveling out there uh, this summer ourselves. We're looking forward to, to taking some studio tours and things of that nature. And okay. yeah. it, for me, it's like it's it's magical because if you love movies, to go out there, I think it adds a unique layer to your love yeah. by seeing it firsthand. Yeah, you know? and, and yeah, and being able just uh, sort of hands on. Speaking of which, uh, when I played Wings at the Academy, that and of course that was the first. Uh, that was the first Oscar winner for Best Picture of mm-hmm. the Year. The only silent picture. I got to hold the Oscar. Wow. And again, that's just a faint dead away moment. I (laughs) can't believe I am actually touching a piece of history like this. Think of where you started. (laughs) Yeah, they're like 11 pounds or something like that. Yeah, you you pick them up and they pull you right to the floor. That's where you feel like you're a Looney Tune and all of a sudden you just like drop them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's good. So um, I was going to talk specifically about the freshman that's coming up this yeah. week. That's your showcase this year. For that the, is the for Thursday film. and Friday. Well, the special thing about it this year uh, is that we have gotten the grant through the local Tom Daly Foundation to bring Suzanne Lloyd mm-hmm. in, and that is Harold Lloyd's granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And she was raised by him at the famous estate, the Green Acres estate, uh, up into her late teen years when when Harold passed away. And uh, so she is going to be sharing personal family things and the history of Harold Lloyd and his character with us then to introduce the film. And she's also bringing along some home movies then. And, of course, the cool thing, Harold Lloyd being Harold Lloyd... Uh, the uh, the home movies were filmed in 35 millimeter by a professional <laughs> camera crew, uh, and I've seen them. And of course, it's it's just incredible. And they're having the baby's birthday party in the back lawn, and there's a 35 piece orchestra playing in the background, and so on. And all of the just the way we all live, of course. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's it's incredible. And as I've been saying, you know, it's it's a peek into the life of a megastar mm-hmm. before that phrase was ever invented. Now, he was one of the biggest stars in the world, and uh, and some of his work actually brought in uh, the most money mm-hmm. in a box office year in Hollywood. So he was a tremendous, tremendous force. So we'll uh, we'll have all of that, and then a little bit of a question and answer session with the audience after the picture is uh, has unwound. Oh, fantastic! So it should be great having her here. She's a she's a super lady. And, uh, of course, extremely passionate about her grandfather's work. She, she produces the restorations today and is a well-known uh, personality in Hollywood. I love the fact that she's still actively engaged in his legacy, too, and getting yeah. his work out there so people yeah. can see it. That's fantastic. And she'll talk about some of that because they're, they're even pushing into the future. Uh, they're working with a company actively right now uh, on plans which are going to materialize that Harold will be animated. Then, for the first time ever, they're oh, working wow. on a cartoon series. 
Wow, so, that's fantastic. Yeah, actually. It's yeah. A great idea. So there's you know there's something that you'll be pushing this 1920s star yeah. into the next century for people who have never seen or heard of okay. Harold Lloyd. Yeah, I mean I I think that the silent movie of the Kappa series is the ones that we've been fortunate enough to see. We saw Charlie Chaplin. I think we've seen a Harold Lloyd movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's just it's one of the best experiences. Mm-hmm. That you can have, as far as entertainment is concerned, I think it's just—it's it, almost like you're going back in time. It's entertaining. I mean, you can't go back to the twenties. You can't go back mm-hmm. to the turn of the century. But for two hours, you feel like mm-hmm. you—you're it, immersed in that kind of style, and it's just. And with the silent film too, I think that there's something really personal about it, just like in any movie, but. There's something about the music and the emotion and what you're reading and how you're interpreting it mm-hmm. because you have no one else really telling you how to feel about it. It's, it's how you are seeing it. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's, it really allows you to make a, a true connection yeah. with the story. It engages a little bit of, almost like a little bit of your imagination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, you become an individual part of this mm-hmm. film on your own level. So, uh, you know, 800 people go away with a slightly different experience, perhaps, yeah. what they got out of that whole evening and out of that film. Yeah. 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 That's really neat. Well, I, I wanted to ask you a question, I think, in closing here. Um, if you can't decide on what your favorite movie is, because I know that that's a really tough question, what would you say is a, the most memorable movie that you've had the uh, privilege to play for? Here during the Kappa series. You mean the regular, the sound films or the silent films? Both, either or, whichever one stands out. Well, probably the film that comes to mind for me immediately is Wings, the silent picture Wings, uh, because of its impact, because uh, of what it was, uh, of the people that were in it, Charles Buddy Rogers and Clara Bow, the the famous It Girl from the time. Yes. And others, and being the first Academy Award winner for Best Picture, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a long picture. It's another two-and-a-half-hour picture, and it's a real workout. But the story is so incredible, and it is an absolute roller coaster of emotion, from fun to coming out of it feeling like you literally were present for all of World War One. And, you know, when he shoots down his best friend and kills him, near the end and then there's the death scene and out of the whole house is awash with people crying and so on it's a powerful powerful film and uh, I think that expresses the silent film art so in spades it's just incredible so that one always comes to mind for me Okay. Well, we want to thank Clark for joining us on the podcast. It was a tremendous pleasure to both meet you and have you on. I appreciate it. I appreciate being here. Yes. Thank you. And um, uh, we'll probably be attending the freshman ourselves this weekend to come and see it. Uh, It takes place two specific dates on on Thursday and Friday, the twentieth and twenty-first. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, it's a little bit of a different format. Uh, uh, My associate David Fleischer plays the overture at seven fifteen. And then uh, we'll just do a couple quick little formalities, and then we'll introduce Suzanne, and we'll have about 20, 25 minutes of interviewing her, mm-hmm. of chatting then, and then we'll do the picture in two halves, and then we'll bring her back to show the home movies and do the Q&A. Excellent. Awesome. Yeah, we cannot wait. And uh, like I said, it's, we're huge fans. It's been a pleasure having you on here. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank Good you. Luck. A pleasure. Thank Thanks a lot. And we'll see you guys at the movies. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Oh, we should get Clark... Uh, I always love it when you describe the Ohio Theater right before every movie. Oh, Will I, you be kind well, maybe we should say, yeah. and now, ladies and gentlemen, yes, and now, ladies and gentlemen, settle back in the perfumed twilight of this spectacular old electric pleasure dome and enjoy our next feature presentation. <laughs>